Hello, this is Pastor Luke, and you are listening to the Henderson MB Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Our mission is to grow disciples and multiply churches who will glorify God and transform communities. For more information on our church, visit hendersonmbchurch.com. I still remember um, uh, kind of coming to the realization that, generically speaking, of course, it's generically speaking, um, just kind of some of the interesting ways that men and women build team unity differently. And uh, so back when I was working with track, you know, we'd have a lot of young adults and that kind of thing, and started to notice trends in, in just in how they would kind of build their sense of team unity. And it seemed to be that for the guys that there was... Uh, team unity was, was uh, it really kind of happened through like having adventures together or, you know, you climb a mountain together, or you achieve something or you, you know, you win a championship or something like that. Like there's some sense of overcoming or, or getting through something together that really kind of built this, this sense of team unity. And um, for the women, it seemed to be more around uh, like sharing together, uh, being vulnerable with one another um, and that kind of thing. I still remember once. Uh, I was visiting a, a high school friend, and uh, Joe and I were married. We, we stopped by their house, and um, I had not met his wife yet, I don't think, and, and I mean, our wives had never met. Uh, we went out into the field and did some shooting, and they stayed and talked, and um, we came back in, and like they hadn't moved, like they were still in the exact same spot as when I left, and I made some comment about they hadn't moved. And this other lady goes, oh, we haven't moved, but we have covered a lot of ground. And uh, that always kind of stuck with me as just kind of a, a kind of a funny thing. What's interesting too is just kind of in reflecting on it is that um, really this even translates into into how you can complement men and women differently. For instance, so hypothetical couple Bob and Sue, because I'm ne- I don't ever want to use your guys's name up from the pulpit. I don't think we have any Bob and Sue, right? Um, but. You know, I approach Bob, and, you know, if, if uh, you know, yeah, I, I, most likely I, I could approach most of the men in this congregation here uh, who, who will just describe Bob. And I can be like, you know, like, Bob, Sue is such just a nice, sweet, tender-hearted gal. You know, how did she ever end up with, like, an ugly old mule like yourself, you know? Right. Right, and most of the men are going to laugh, and then they're going to start complimenting themselves. They're going to be like, right, I know, like, I am the man, you know? You can't reverse it, right? Like, I cannot come up to Sue and be like, Sue, Bob is such a sweet, tender-hearted, you know, old soul, and I'm not even going to finish the sentence because it's just too awful, right? But... Like, like, you just, men and women compliment differently. But, what's, but, but when you think about it, though, like with Bob, what have I actually complimented? Like, I have complimented his wife, but I've actually complimented his ability to, to sort of like marry outside his league, so to speak. Right? His, his ability to marry someone more beautiful, more successful, more smart, that kind of thing. And so, in a sense, there's almost kind of this thing that I'm, yes, I am complimenting Sue, but by joking about the difference i'm actually complimenting his ability to achieve or, or to succeed or or that kind of thing um 
I've also heard it described that um, men are like waffles and women are like spaghetti. Have you heard about this? Um, So for men, like how their minds think, everything is compartmentalized. And nothing must ever touch, right? So I go to work, I have a day at work, and then I go home. I don't want to talk about work. I love to work at work. I'm home now. Like, those boxes shouldn't touch. But I will sometimes talk about my day because Joe wants to hear about my day. But honestly, I just, you know, I just soon, you know, leave the day there and that kind of thing. And this is also, like married couples, you've probably noticed this. You can have a, like, huge fight, and yet he's still in the mood in the evening. And you're like, what? How does that work? They're different boxes. See? Um, whereas the comparison would be more that men are, or that women are more like spaghetti in that everything's interacting, right? Everything's touching, everything's kind of interconnected, uh, that kind of thing. There's actually been some fascinating research out there just on how men and women's brains are formed differently, how they're formed differently in the, in the womb, how they, uh, how they're built differently. Um, it's just, it's amazing. God intentionally made us different, but complementary. And, and it's actually a beautiful and remarkable thing uh, in how that, that works together. We're doing, so we're doing a, a sermon series on uh, Genesis, working through Genesis 1 to 11. We're in Genesis 2 and 3. Um, if you missed last week, I would encourage you to go back and, and listen to it. Uh, last week we talked about um, the rise and fall of man and almost kind of doing this comparison between... So in Genesis 2, everything is perfect. Everything is perfect in Genesis 2. And then in Genesis 3, we mess it all up. And, and, you, and you see kind of the, that opening beginning of sin entering the world. And you see God interacting with Adam and Eve and the serpent and, and calling and, and cursing and that kind of thing. And so um, last week, um, just looked at, at that difference for men. Um, this week, looking at, uh, at it a little bit more for Eve. And um, so, so in the Garden of Eden, everything is, is perfect. In chapter 2, except for one thing, and that is that Adam was alone, right? I mean, it talks about everything was great, everything was perfect. Um, but then God says, well, actually, it's not good that Adam is alone, which is kind of code for the boy needs help, right? And so Scripture talks about how God made a helper suitable for him. All right, now something interesting I learned this week, which really isn't relevant to any of this, but it's fascinating, so I think I'll share it. In the King James, it, it will talk about how it, um, God created Eve and he calls her a help meet. I didn't know that was a real word. I, I always thought people were just mispronouncing help mate, M-A-T-E. Help mate is a generic term for helper, but the King James uses help meet, M-E-E-T, because that's a helper who is a spouse. I always thought people were just saying it wrong. There you go. Help meet is an actual word. You are dismissed. Thank you for coming. Um, but anyways, that's King James for those of you that are still reading King James. Um, it's helpful, though, to back up and just say, okay, helper to what? <laughs> I mean, obviously it's Adam, but, but what is going on with Adam that, that he would need a helper? Um, for a long time, I have used the phrase uh, godly male leadership. Uh, that Adam, uh, that husbands and men, uh, that just our, our, our society needs more godly male leadership. Uh, a man's responsibility in the home, in church, in society, in, in communi- uh, community, 
um, and that, you know, we just, we need godly male leadership in that. And it's a good phrase. I like that phrase. I stand by that phrase. But at the same time, or, or one other thing I would say, too, is that, you know, I think men gravitate towards self, selfish apathy or selfish aggression, and godly male leadership can, can speak against those. But at the same time, it can be confusing because people may somehow interpret, well, you know, you're saying godly male leadership. Does that mean that women can't lead or that they're incapable of leading? And that's, that's not true. I mean, we have remarkable women leaders. We have remarkable women leaders in our church and in our society. And so just kind of in an effort to avoid that confusion, um, probably a better word that I've just um, kind of been learning the last few weeks would actually be headship. And so headship is a word that we see in Ephesians. And so this idea of um, godly male headship, and Matt Chandler has a great definition of this that I love. This is really clever. You should write it down. I didn't come up with this. Someone else did. Godly male headship, though, the work of establishing order for human flourishing. Godly male headship, the work of establishing order for human flourishing. And I think that you could say pretty confidently that when Christ-centered men fully step into that role, like, everything flourishes. The home flourishes, society flourishes, church flourishes, schools flourishes, that kind of thing. And you can see sections of our society where men have not stepped into that role, and you see suffering in the home, you know, in the church, in the community, in the school, that kind of thing. So, um, godly headship, um, the work of Christ-centered men to establish order for human flourishing. Um, A lot more that we could say around the, just kind of the role, the expectation that God has of men. Uh, Some of that we covered last week. Uh, There are books upon books written on this, podcasts, lots of great material out there. Uh, All men should just be a perpetual student of what does it mean to be a Christ-centered man how do I serve well? How do I love well? How do I lead well? How, do, how am I a good friend? Um, that kind of thing. The other thing I would share is that um, our, our church, our denomination, uh, would embrace what's considered a complementarian view in that we would believe that men and women are created equal, but at the same time God has made us different. So different roles, different functions, uh, just how we're wired differently, that kind of thing. So, Genesis 2. Verse 18, Uh, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Uh, This is in the ESV, I will make him, or yeah, I will make him a helper fit for him. Okay, so breaking that down a little bit. Um, Helper comes from the word um, ezer, E-Z-E-R. What you need to remember, because sometimes people get a little bit offended at the idea of, of being a helper. What you need to remember, though, is that sometimes that word is actually used to describe God. Uh, Psalm 121, very popular psalm. I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help, where does my ezer or ezer come from? My help comes from the Lord. Okay, same word. Um, Exodus uh, 18, verse 4 um, he, he talks about uh, naming one of his ke- kids um, Eliezer because he said, The God of my fathers was my help, and he delivered me from the, the sword of Pharaoh. So not all uses of, of this word um, Ezer do refer to God, but, but some do. But the point is, is that helper is not junior varsity. 
I think that's sometimes a, a lie that, that kind of gets out there. Helper is not junior varsity. Um, and we would never call God junior varsity. We would never call God subservient to humans, right? This isn't about being subservient. This is just about having a role coming alongside and helping. Um, the other thing to, to remember is that in the role of helper, the helper doesn't take over. It's, they, they simply assist the, the person in achieving what it was that they were tasked with. So Eve does not walk into the garden and say, all right, I'm here now. I'm in charge. Here's how it's going to be. This is what's going to happen, right? I mean, maybe it would have turned out better if she had, but she didn't. Um, she comes alongside Adam and she helps him exercise dominion over the earth. That's something that both Adam and Eve are tasked with is exercising dominion over the earth. The second part, fit for him. The other key word that, that, is, that is really often kind of left out of this discussion is fit for him. And it literally means according to the opposite of him. Uh, in other words, it, the focus is on an appropriate match. Um, more and more, I, am, I, just, I love the... And this, this had to have been intentional, how God chose, used the rib to make Eve and some of the symbolism in that. Um, I shared this last week, perhaps you've heard this, you know, that, that he chose not, he, he didn't choose from the head to be above him, not from his feet to be below him, but from his rib, close to his heart to be loved by him, and under his arm to be protected by him. There, there is something special, I believe, for our wives where they enjoy that close, protected position. And I can prove it to you. Because let me ask you this, married people, who always likes to be little spooned? Right? Like when you guys spoon, who normally likes to be little spooned? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Our wives like to feel protected. Eve was fit for him. She was on the other side of, uh, in front of, opposite, that which corresponds, contrary. Even your hands. Look at your two hands. They are identical, but yet not identical. They're actually opposite. And because of that, you can do so much more with both a left hand and a right hand as compared to two right hands or two left hands. There's a sense of equality, but yet opposite. Eve was designed to be a perfect complementarian fit for Adam. Opposite in so many ways, and yet they can accomplish far more than if they were identical. Um, Adam is given this companion who is just right for him. After Adam and Eve rebel against God, God kicks them out of the garden. Uh, he curses the serpent and the ground, uh, but then he tells Adam and Eve some of the consequences of the fall. What's interesting is that for both of them, really their design is now associated with pain. You see that uh, with Adam, right? Adam was designed to work. I mean, you, you, you see that biologically. I mean, you know, men are just, they're, they're stronger, broader shoulders. You see that in Genesis 2, that part of the perfection of the garden was that Adam was to work. Um, but now all of his labor is associated with pain. God says to Adam, uh, you, you've listened to the voice of your wife. You've eaten from the tree that I commanded you um, in pain. Oh, oh, sorry. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, 
You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns, thistles, it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. God speaks to Eve as well, too. And it's interesting because God now tells Eve that she will suffer pain and misery, really, in many ways, around two of the things that she holds dearest to her heart, and that's children and marriage. Uh, For Eve, obviously, a significant part of her blessing was the role of children. I mean, all around the world, women are excited to have babies and and raise children. And I mean, not all women want to, and that's totally fine, but if we were to generalize... um, most of the women are just really excited to have babies and raise children. I mean, their excitement far surpasses men's uh, in, in just in anticipation, right? I mean, most women are just so much excitement around having babies, being a mom, take, you know, child rearing, that kind of thing. Uh, it was interesting uh, a while back. It's interesting just kind of what sticks in your head uh, from three years ago. Um, there, there's a lady by the name of, um, I'm probably going to say her name wrong, uh, Uh, Ronda Rousey. She is a silver medal judo champion, um, all kinds of heaps and awards. She was one of the first women to fight in UFC, which is like mixed martial arts. For like three years, she went undefeated. I mean, just like this woman can just kill you with her bare hands if anyone can. Uh, And then one day she lost a fight, got really depressed. And the thing, though, that kind of helped bring her out of it was, I need to have babies. And just the contrast that this woman could just easily kill you. But the thing that brought her out of depression was, I need to have children. To the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yes. No one's going to argue with that. Um, Been in the room a couple times. Um, Yes. (laughs) Uh, it's interesting in Canada, they don't really do the epidural. They just give you like this smoke gas stuff to puff on. Um, I'm not sure how much it helps, but it does seem to give you amnesia. Uh, and so you just don't remember it. Um, plus I think it's cheaper and it's socialized medicine and whatever, that kind of thing. Uh, Jesus made the comment in John 16:21: a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into this world. So the, the first part uh, of that is, is the pain in childbirth. The second part gets really confusing. Um, so in, in the second part, once again, I, 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 it, it's, it's in the relationship, it, it's in the marriage relationship between uh, her husband. And, and here's how it reads. Um, your desire shall be for your husband... And he shall rule over you. So God is saying that now that sin has entered the world, there's going to be this difficult consequence of sin and suffering that you will experience and that all of humanity will experience and a result of it. And your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Well, what's tricky is, for starters, just what does that mean? But the other thing that makes it complicated is that that phrase is, like, the wording on that is really rare, and it only occurs in two other places in Scripture. And the way and how it appears in these two other places in Scripture are totally different. 
But we're trying to use, you know, Scripture to understand Scripture. So either we look to Song of Solomon to understand this passage, or we look to Genesis 4 to understand what does this mean. In Song of Solomon, it reads like this. Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 7, verse 10. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Okay, so in this case, in the Song of Solomon case, pretty strong connotation of sexual desire going on in there all right so when we look for the sin and the suffering and the brokenness of the world you know do we see that there's just this really strong force in wives and they just have this overwhelming desire sexual desire for their husbands and it's just causing all this grief and anguish in their life and in the life of their husbands and in the life of society you know, I'm going to lean towards not. That, that, that's not really a problem. Plus, we just see in other scriptures that um, just that, that, that healthy sexual desire within the confines of marriage is, is a good and holy thing. The other place where this wording happens is Genesis 4-7, and that's a completely different uh, usage. In Genesis 4-7, uh, he's giving a warning to Cain, who has just murdered his brother. And God says to him, sin is lurking at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. And so there's this sense of sin desiring to control you. Historically, the, the, um, the academics and a lot of the scholars think that, that what God is saying there in that verse is that what this text is most likely telling us is that Eve, or the wife, is now going to have a desire to usurp or to take the role of headship from her husband and either rule her husband or rule without him. So this idea that, that Eve will have a desire to usurp authority, to take authority from the, the headship of her husband... And either rule her husband or rule without him. Now here's the kind of the brutal irony in this. Is reflecting last week on how men gravitate towards a sin of either selfish apathy or selfish aggression. You can really start to see how our sins will feed off of each other and really down spiral. Men gravitate towards selfish apathy, selfish aggression. Apathy is what happens when Adam did nothing while the serpent was deceiving Eve. When men abandon their roles through apathy or they abuse their roles through aggression. What is that going to create in his wife? She will find a way to survive. And so she will say either, fine, we'll do it, we'll be in charge, we'll do it on our own, we don't need you. Or as one feminist uh, rather humorously commented, that a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. Okay. But combine that with an already present sinful desire in women to usurp authority to begin with. So there's even the stronger desire to, to take over, to do it on their own. But then it doesn't happen because now what happens when you have a man whose weakness is towards apathy. And then you have a woman who out of either survival or sinfulness desires to take authority. How is that man going to respond? 
probably with even more apathy, with more laziness. And it's like, fine, I'll just sit on the couch and play video games and smoke weed and you can do everything else. Or he'll just throw himself into his hobbies and it's just non-existent in the home. And so our sinful weaknesses feed off of each other and things can easily get worse and worse. Um, the other thing I would say is that, uh, you know, God continues, he says, um, and he shall rule over you. Uh, in other places, rule is translated as dominate, and I think in a lot of places, in America too, but, but um, I, I think in, in America we, we see more of the apathy, but I mean, you look internationally and you see a lot of women who are severely, severely oppressed by their husbands. And it's sick. Like, I mean, it's just a sin. Okay? Like, just to the, the, the level of what's going on. That is man ruling over her. That is not him acting as, as just a Christ-centered way with kind of this, this servant headship mentality. So, ladies, sin has taken two of the things that you love the most. Two of the things that you're very excited about, and it's tainted them around children and around the marriage relationship. Now, um, I want to speak to the ladies. I want to give you some hope. But, but first, I, knew, I do need to clarify one more thing. Um, because it's, it's important that I speak to the women differently than, than I speak to the men, just because men and women are different, right? I mean, men, like, God bless you, men, right? But, and ladies, you know this. Like, your husband can, like, like, not have shaved or like showered in like three days and he's rank and he's just like hairy as a yak and put on too much weight and like he will still look in the mirror and think to himself still got it (laughs) so when you're speaking to the men you just kind of got to rattle their cage a little bit more to kind of get their attention right women like she can be one degree shy of perfection and just hate herself um, ladies, two areas where I think you probably experience sin and suffering, based on research, I'm not basing this on any of you, uh, two areas where uh, I think you experience a lot of sin and suffering is around perfection and comparison. And, and I wish we had more time to unpack all of this, but just this tendency towards unhealthy comparison where, where there is a disordered desire for approval and validation, and also a disordered perfectionism, where there is a desire for righteousness and perfection apart from Christ. I mean, that's why you will sometimes see women give up social media for Lent. I've never seen a guy give so, social media for Lent, right? Assuming he can even find the Facebook icon on his phone, right? But you'll see women give up social media for Lent because just this unhealthy comparison, disordered perfectionism, and it's just hard on the soul. And so you just need to create a season of life where you can just feel okay. But what this means is that as we go through Scripture and as we encounter Scripture that offers a word of correction or rebuke specifically to women, it just lands differently than when we encounter a word of correction or rebuke for men. It, like, it, just, it just lands differently. So, ladies, yes, you sin. And you're probably pretty good at it. Um, and you suffer. You suffer because of the sin of others. You, you suffer because of what happened in the garden. Like, you suffer. And it hurts deeply. A couple things to remember. 
First off, since we mentioned social media, let's just clarify that most of social media is lies. That's just veneer and lies. Secondly, God does not see you the way that you see you. God sees you far more favorably than you see you. Because when God sees you, he sees the perfection of his son, Jesus Christ. So he sees you differently than than he sees you. Uh, You need to remember that he loves you deeply, that he cherishes you deeply, and that he wants good things to you. If you are married to a good man, and many of you are, you need to remember that he is there to stand alongside you, not stand against you. It's also true, I mean, you may need to do some repentance and some correction, right? And some of that may be a short conversation, and some of that may be years on you retraining yourself on how to treat your husband. You will make mistakes, your husband will make mistakes, there's more than enough grace for both of you. And hopefully as he continues to grow in his skill and understanding of godly headship, he is thrilled to have, as God describes it, a helper suitable for him. You guys need each other, and you need each other to become better people. Last week when I spoke to the men, I shared where I was hopeful and uh, where we needed some work or where I was nervous. I'd like to do the same here. Uh, I am hopeful. I am thankful because overall we have really great women in this church. We really do. Um, I like it when a church has solid Christian women in the mix. The, The church needs you. Your families need you. Your husbands need you. Society needs you. Uh, we, we need you healthy, we, we need you operating in your strengths, but I have a lot of hope um, just because where we're at with, with, this, with this church. Here is one area, though, where I would ask more of you. Would you please take the initiative to mentor younger women? Especially the grandmas in the mix, right? I mean, younger gals too, right? But especially those of you who have seen a little bit more of life, it's fascinating. So Timothy 2.3, Paul writes to this, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to... Okay, now hold on, let me pause. So we just covered where are the two areas of pain for, for women according to Genesis? Children and the marriage relationship, all right? Paul in Titus, or when, when he writes to Titus, says this, Older women are to train the younger women to love their husbands and children. Same two categories are mentioned in the New Testament as where we see brokenness in the Old Testament. Ladies, call up the younger gals. Don't call it mentoring. That's just going to freak them out, okay? Call them up and say, you know, hon, how are you? Can I buy you lunch? Can I buy you coffee? Bring the littles if you want to. Uh, just want to chat. Just want to hear how you are. And then just ask about life. I mean, how are things going with mothering or singleness or husband or kids or job or whatever? Listen well. And then, maybe after a couple meetings, find places to speak truth. Find places to speak grace and hope. Find places to speak the gospel. Offer to pay, just because that's courteous. 
they may ask things of you that are unrealistic, and it's okay to say no, right? You're not there to clean the house or to fix her husband or whatever, that kind of thing. Have some healthy boundaries, but initiate the call. And then a few weeks later, call him up again and be like, hey, sweetie, how are you? Can I bring you a latte? You can get those now here in town. Let me word it like this. How selfish of you to take all of your years of wisdom and experience and to take them to the grave and not offer to share them with other people. Before they will listen, you will have to listen. But initiate that phone call. And some of you may be thinking, well, I don't know what I would say. I'm not sure I have anything good to say. That's fine. Don't say anything. Just ask good questions. The art is not in knowing at all. The art is in asking the question. Last few weeks, looking at sin, looking at suffering, uh, the Garden of Eden, but, but like we said this morning, Easter is coming. Easter is coming. Um, obviously, as a holiday, Easter is coming. Um, but when Jesus comes again, Easter is coming. Jesus is called the second Adam. Because he did it right. He did it perfect. He restored that which was broken. Right? I mean, Adam and Eve gave up a lot of authority and dominion when, 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 they, when they ate of the fruit. Christ restores that and gives authority back to his church. Uh, much of what is broken is either fixed or, or set in that direction. It won't be perfect until Christ comes again the second time. But... But now we operate out of a place of hope and we operate out of a place of power to start working towards that until Christ comes again. In Jesus, all things are made new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for the good women in this church. Thank you for the heritage of good women in this church. God, I want to pray for the, the women of this church. Lord, we are continually blessed by them. But Lord, we also recognize that just because of brokenness, they sin, they suffer. And so, Lord, we pray for them this morning, that you would watch them, that you would guard them, that you would heal them, that, that you would protect them. Lord, for, for the men in their, their lives to, to understand and to come alongside and to nurture and to care for and to listen and to support and to cheer on and to advocate for Lord, each of us comes before you this morning just with open hands of our, our mix of sin and suffering. And we just bring it before you, Jesus. We say we need help. Help us, Lord. Lord, where there has been sin, we ask for correction. Where there has been suffering, we ask for healing and for restoration. Lord, none of us has done it perfect. None of us will do it perfect. But by your grace, we want to continue to move forward and just continue to be students of what it means to be Christ-centered men and women who have Christ-centered homes. We're so thankful. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you were enriched and encouraged. If you have questions about Christ or church or would like more information, visit our website at hendersonmbchurch.com.
or email me directly at luke at hendersonmbchurch.com. We hope you have a fantastic week. Take care and God bless.